Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Ted Joya to continue their discussion of his book, Music, A Subversive History. Nate and Ted talk about the less-than-perfect realities of the lives of the great composers. From the murderous makers of madrigals, to the sometimes sordid antics of Johann Sebastian Bach, to the very problematic Richard Wagner, Ted brings a very different perspective to the men we see as paragons of the establishment. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we have the pleasure of welcoming back Ted Joya to discuss again his book, A Subversive History of Music. And today we're going to talk about a section of the book focusing on what we broadly call classical music, the European concert uh, tradition, and starting off with chapters like Musicians Behaving Badly. So it's kind of a different take on classical music. Ted, welcome back to the show. Right. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. And I, I wanted to do this because, you know, we talked about the book before and and it's it's a paradigm shifting book for me. It's one that really expanded my mind and, and clarified a lot of things I'd sort of been wrestling with. And you put it into words brilliantly and it, it helped me focus on the whole scope of the show. But this section in particular was one I skipped over last time because I considered it outside uh, the breadth of the show, which has covered you know things like the history of rock and roll music and pop music in the 20th century. And I realized reading this book and then doing more follow-up research that the history of popular music as a business really goes back to the Renaissance. Well, absolutely. And a lot of the behavior patterns of the musicians as well date back to then. You know, people often ask me what I learned researching this book, and it was many years of research, but one of the quickest summaries I have is I found out that the music of my time and the music I grew up with, which was jazz, blues, and rock and roll, that really the musicians back in the glory years of classical music weren't all that different. And we have a tendency to sanitize that whole record and to treat these people with great esteem. But they were just as disruptive, in many ways more disruptive, than the later rock musicians. So there's a lot of things that we take for granted in the current day that, in fact, were just as vibrant and as noticeable 200, 300 years ago. Yeah, and you talk about this phenomenon that repeats throughout the history of music in the book, which is a, a transition from disruption to respectability, from outsiders to insiders. And so often musical innovations are driven by people on the outside of the system, but then they're, as they succeed, as they impact the popular consciousness, they're pulled in to the inside. Sometimes they themselves become insiders. Other times they're co-opted, you know, post-mortem. Talk about that phenomenon a little bit. Well, that's right. And we're very familiar with this in our own lifetime. We've all seen it 
when I was growing up, uh, the, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, these were all dangerous figures feared by the establishment. But nowadays, Bob Dylan is a Nobel laureate. Uh, Mick Jagger is Sir Mick Jagger. Paul McCartney is Sir Paul McCartney. Uh, and even the most extreme examples, I mean, take hip-hop and NWA. The FBI tried to shut down the record label when they came on board. Nowadays, that same record has been enshrined in the National Archive of Historic Recordings by the Library of Congress. You have the Smithsonian out there putting together an official Smithsonian Guide to Hip-Hop, where they have 50 hip-hop professors. I mean, the very idea of a hip-hop professor would have seen a contradiction in terms, but they have 50 of them putting together this canon of hip-hop songs. So we know about this from our own lifetime. We've seen how these styles have been legitimized. What we don't realize, the same thing happened hundreds of years ago. You know, a classic example is Bach. You know, Bach is considered now the poster child for respectability in classical music. This great composer who composed for God and country, uh, devout Lutheran, etc., etc. But you go back into his own times and you find that Bach grew up with juvenile delinquents, went to a school famous for gang culture, was mentored by one of the worst gang members. All his early jobs had disciplinary problems. Uh, at a young age, he had to spend a month in jail. Uh, he was called to task for cavorting with a young lady in the organ loft, had prodigious beer drinking. I mean, every possible uh, violation of, of rules and discipline he exemplified, but none of that is, is remembered nowadays. He's just the great Lutheran composer. And so this is recurring. We could talk about other composers. But there's one point I do want to make, though. I raise these issues in my book, not because I'm trying to be gossipy, or salacious, and it makes for great reading to read all these sexy anecdotes I have. The point I'm trying to make, though, is these figures could not have created the disruptive music they invented if they hadn't been disruptive in their own lifetimes. You know, almost all the commentary on Bach we have from back then are people complaining about him. You know, people complaining about how showy he was. He was called to task before the city council had to submit a written document explaining why he was using such new progressive and strange musical techniques. So this thing is connected. The disruption in their private life and the disruption in their music is connected. And that's why I dwell upon it, because if you don't understand that, you will never understand the evolution of music. And going back a little further, you talk about a couple of composers from the Italian Renaissance who went way beyond Bach in terms of violations of social norms. I'm talking about Two in particular, Bartolomeo Trombosino and Carlo Gesualdo, and both of these guys were involved in love triangles that resulted in murders committed by them. Well, this is right. It's, it's interesting. If you start with the music of these two individuals, Trombosino and Gesualdo, it's gentle music. They, they wrote love songs, these pretty gentle love songs, madrigals and frodoas. Uh, but in their private life, they were violent, angry people. And both of them, not only did they commit murders, but it was obvious to everybody that they were guilty and they were never punished. And this is interesting because it shows you that starting around the Renaissance, it became the norm for musicians to go outside the norm. They were allowed indiscretions that other people were not allowed. And in fact, I'm convinced in both those instances, their fame and reputation was increased by committing murder. I think people felt, well, if this guy is such a passionate lover that he, 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 he kills somebody in a fit of jealous rage, you know, there must be a similar intensity of passion in the song. And we laugh at that, but that's the same way people look at rock bands or the Sex Pistols. I mean, we've seen this in our lifetime. If, if the musician is out of control, we suspect there must be a certain intensity in the music as well. So it all, all came back to that time. And I'll, let me give just one more example. I find this fascinating. People that want to understand what it was like to be an artist during the Renaissance, the most famous book they read is the autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini. He was a Renaissance artist, famous as a silversmith, a sculptor, but he was also a musician, played the flute, and he wrote his life story. And it makes for fascinating reading. 
But I went through that book page by page, and I just marked off every time Cellini committed a violent crime. <laughs> and I think I came up eventually with at least 14 violent crimes he'd committed in his life. Uh, and this is not including the, 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 just the vandalism or the larceny. These are actually violent crimes where he murdered somebody or beat them up. <laughs> and, and none of them was he punished for. He was, he was actually put in jail a couple times, but it was only because of, of arguments with his patrons over payment and artworks. And my favorite anecdote from the whole book comes from a, a conversation when someone w approached the Pope and said to the Pope, do you really want to hire this guy Cellini? You know, he's committed murder and all this. And the Pope said, you don't understand, for people like Benvenuto Cellini, different rules apply. So this, this came directly from the mouth of the Pope in the Renaissance. And this was a new idea. And, and I would say we still live with this idea today, even though, and even in the midst of the Me Too movement and all the scandals, there's still this expectation that the great musicians live by their own rules and they violate rules. And, and I, for good or bad, that's part of the whole legacy of Western music. And what was the change around that time that empowered musicians to become above the law? Well, the real change is that for the first time we have an audience. Now, people just take that for granted. Now, back when I say the audience was invented around the time of the Renaissance or the late medieval period, people look at me as though I'm crazy. Now, Ted, there always was an audience. Uh, in fact, there, in, in many times and places, there's no, there is no audience. Where the, the, the music making is so embedded into the community and the rituals that to say some people are audience and some people are performers is misguided. But even back when there was, let's go back to ancient Rome, there were these great spectacles, the pantomime or these public performances. And obviously there was an audience there, but no one took them seriously. If you were one of the leaders of Rome, you would look down upon those people in the audience. You were the rabble. They were not the source of aesthetic judgment. You, you laughed at them. You, you mocked them. All of a sudden, though, in the Renaissance, the idea emerged that the audience actually validates the quality of the song. It started with the troubadours, but by the time you get to the Renaissance, there's this idea that if the audience doesn't like it, it's not good music. And we take that for granted now. But there, before that, that wasn't the case. The audience didn't validate the music. The music was for country, it was for God, it was for the nobility, the idea that the audience could decide. So this whole idea of audience-driven aesthetics is what gave such power and influence and an ability to break the rules for the musicians. There's a great example, once again, from Cellini's autobiography, where he was working on this sculpture for uh, oh, a member of the Medici family. And there's a, a dispute over the quality of the statue. And uh, the, the member of the Medici family, nobility, sort of hides in public to try to listen to what people are saying about this, the Cellini's work oh, oh, and just understanding what the average person thinks about it. So this is a, a great turning point where the nobility actually consults the average person to figure out what's good art or bad art. And we live with that now today. There's this inherent assumption again that the audience drives everything, almost to an extreme extent. I'm, I'm always dismayed at the Grammy Awards you know, the Grammy Awards seem too much driven by honoring albums that sell a lot. You know, compared to the Oscars, you know, Oscar just went to Parasite. And if you look at the last five, ten years, it's, it's never the case that an Oscar goes to a blockbuster film. You know, the Oscar voters have this idea that they're even suspicious if some movie makes a billion dollars. You know, if the new Spider-Man movie makes a billion dollars, it will never get nominated for Best Picture. But in the music world, the award winners often, frequently coincide with the big money makers. So I think that's, once again, it's a legacy of this whole audience-driven aesthetics that permeates how we view music. And let's hear a little snippet of some of this early popular music. This is from Jacopo Perry, La, Dur La Eurydice. This is from scene two, the messenger scene. And this is from 1600, possibly the first opera, at least the first opera we have a record of. Let's hear it, Jacopo Perry.
And that was Jacopo Peri's La Eurydice, the first opera, and that was performed by the School of Music at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. So what happened with opera? How does opera become really the first popular concert attraction in Western music? Well, once again, we got to recalibrate our notions, because if you grow up in our era, Opera is old and fuddy-duddy and traditional and respectable. We've been trained to view it that way, and the opera companies want us to view it that way. They want, they want to have uh, the wealthy people in the community donate to the opera as a respectable cultural organization. But that's not the origin of opera. You know, Opera was scandalous, and just having women on stage singing this was this was transgressive. You know, through most of early history, only two vocations allowed women to sing. Go back a thousand years. And, and these were the professions. If you were a prostitute or if you were a nun. <laughs> you know, that, that was so the idea was <laughs> if you were a prostitute, it was dangerous because you were singing about sex. If you were a nun, it was okay for her to sing because she was locked away in a convent. But any other woman who sang was considered suspect. And you had the ancient Greek myth about the sirens. Just by listening to a woman sing, a man could lose his soul. And this is a whole, I mean, this is a, we could talk a whole hour just on this. I mean, it, it, as remarkable as it will seem to people in our day and age, until very recently, if you were working in the sex trade, you expected to be able to sing. And nowadays we have, we have separated out those two professions, <laughs> but but we just assumed I mean, this was this was you know part of the sex trade I mean, virtually every part of the world too you know from the geishas wherever you go you know, you'd see this, but in Western culture until opera, women were were not supposed to sing in public, and then there was a tremendous thing that the Duke of Ferrara did in the late 1500s. He got together a group of women, a, a consort of women, just to sing. And so people that were entertained by the Duke of Ferrara, they would go to his, his castle or his palace or whatever, and these women would come out and sing, and people were scandalized. In fact, there was an assumption these women must really be prostitutes. They can't, you know, the, the, the idea that they were just, they were just out there singing was, was, was tremendously scandalous. And then a few years later, the first operas came out, because everybody wanted to see this. Everybody wanted to see this. So most people think there's a huge gap between opera and, let's say, Cardi B or Nicki Minaj or Madonna or whatever. But there isn't that big a gap. It was very sexualized. It was sensualized. Uh, the, the early operas, always, just like the one you played, are always built on love stories. And even if there was no love story, they would invent one. They would always go back into mythology, and they would find some mythological story or epic story of Odysseus or the Aeneid, but they would always focus on the love angle. So even if the love story in the Aeneid is only a small part of the story, when it would be turned into the opera, that would be the major part of it. So this is, we need to recalibrate our notion of opera. It, it really was, it was scandalous, it was revolutionary, it was radical, and, and, and people went there not just to hear the music, but for this eroticized performance that they weren't going to see anywhere else. And it was the singers who were the real stars and made even more money than the composers. Far more, far more. You know, it was not uncommon in the early operas for the woman singer, the diva, to make five or ten times as much as the composer. Even a successful composer who had created hit operas uh, had to, to uh, be behind the stage and all the money and glamour and honors went to the, to the woman who was singing at the opera. Even a famous composer like Handel would never make as much money as the singer. Now, once again, this seems ridiculous to us. These composers now are esteemed or famous. How could they, the, the names of the singers are forgotten. How could the singer make more than the composer? But once again, this is no different than the, the, the current time. I mean, if you go take an artist like Madonna, if she sings a song on an album, do we go check the name of the songwriter? You know, do we look at, you know, do we really honor the songwriter as much as we do the singer? Well, nowadays the royalties are such that the, the, the composer will make a lot of money off those songs, in some instances more than the singer. But even today, the, 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 
the sexualized energy focused on female singers is the focal point of money-making in the music business. But some of these composers had a trump card to play, and people like Jean-Baptiste Lully became almost czars of musical production and were given patents and monopolies, some of them organized guilds. Was that a boon for musicians? Was this a, a period of, of freedom and, and collaboration and diversity, or did these musicians abuse their power? Well, we have this naive notion in the current day, I'm probably as bad as anyone else. You know, we all complain about the music business and the record labels and the streaming platforms and how music musicians are exploited. But the history is very clear on this, that when musicians themselves have been given the power, they've been just as abusive as the, as the corporations, maybe even worse. And you, you just mentioned John Baptiste Louis. He was literally given a patent in France over all opera productions. So anyone who wanted to produce, he got this from the king. If you wanted to produce an opera, you had to pay him money. And he died, one of the wealthiest people in France, or even government ministers who didn't have the kind of fortune he amassed from abusing his power over music. Probably the most striking examples in England, where you have uh, two composers, Thomas Tallis and William Byrd, who were very popular with Queen Elizabeth. And she gave them a 21-year patent on all music in England. Now think about it, a patent over music. I mean, we're, just, we're not talking about a copyright on a song. They had a patent over all music performed in England for 21 years. And the patent was so extensive, it even covered music paper. Just the music notation paper they had a patent on. Literally, before even a single note was, was composed, uh, Bert and Talis got their cut. And so this is a great case study. What does it, ha what does it mean when a musician has that much power? And, you know, these are two of my favorite composers, but I have to say they abused this, this privilege they had. And for those 21 years, they were authoritarians in, in what they allowed to be published or not published. And it's very revealing that uh, the patent expired, I believe it was 1596. And in 1597, it was like a golden age for, for music in England. All this music was published. Uh, more music was published then in any of the preceding years. So it was really the expiration of the patent that allowed a flourishing of music, which gives you some measure of how abusive it was. Uh, and then in 1598, I think uh, Thomas Morley got the patent renewed, and, and we went back to this period of, of musicians abusing their power. And this, you see this all over Europe. You see this in Venice. You see this in the Holy Roman Empire, where musicians will get these grants from the king or queen or the emperor and use them as restraint on trade. And you it wasn't just when individuals had power. It, it, well, it wasn't just when individuals were given power. It was also when, when musicians or, organized collectively that they would abuse their power. You tell the story of the Meistersingers, a guild, and what they did to music. Well, yes, the Meistersingers in Germany. It's, it's like a musician's guild. And uh, it was deadening what they eventually did to the musical culture. I mean, they would have these competitions, and everything had to be done according to the rule book, which specified everything from what, how many syllables in a line or you know, what biblical topics you could sing about. And it, it's like uh, the mirror image of American Idol, where you were rewarded for not violating rules or making mistakes, and not creative expression. And they, they literally, it was so deadening that, that people stopped paying attention. And there, there are many records of the Meister singers complaining that people were not giving them the esteem they do to this great music. But it shows you that uh, this utopian idea we have in our heads that if musicians just had more power, everything would be great. Well, that's not true. Well, you know, we've seen this in, in, our, in our own uh, modern times. You know, take, for example, ASCAP, which was an association of, of, of songwriters and composers. This was a group of, of musicians got together to protect their own interests. Uh, yet there were abuses there, too. I mean, Jelly Roll Morton, the great jazz composer, complained bitterly. They would never let him into ASCAP. And, and so these musicians in power, they used their power to exercise restraint of trade. And this is a sad but recurring story throughout the history of music. <laughs> and and we've talked about the emergence of the audience and the emergence of of 
marketplace as an arbiter of music and a, and a source of income for musicians. But, you know, there's the saying that the future is unequally distributed, that, that the future is happening in one place and, and not, not at another at the same time. So even a couple centuries later, you have someone like Bach that we've discussed a little bit, but he goes through a transition of being sponsored by, you know, he's got patrons, he's working for cities, or he's re- working for religious institutions, rather than being a, a popular composer. But just a generation or so later, uh, his descendants and even some of his peers like Handel and Hayden um, are swept up into popular audiences, frequently moving to England. That seemed to be a recurring trend for, for German composers to find popular success in England. What was the lure across the channel? Well, you have this tremendous shift between the year 1700 and 1800. And everything changed. At the beginning of that period, if you were a musician, you had to find a patron. And the patron was always um, from the church or from the nobility. And the most secure job was to be a choir master. And if you could actually become a composer for a duke or a lord or a king, that was even the best of all. And so you had to toe the line. You were a a member of these huge, powerful organizations, and and you had to live by their rules. And then by the time you get to 1800, it's all changed. There's a real free market economy. Uh, You you can live composing freelance, giving lessons, giving concerts. You know, Mozart had at least five different ways of making income. Mozart was not very good with his patrons. In fact, his most famous patron literally kicked him out the door with a kick in the ass. I mean, really kicked him, literally kicked him in the butt <laughs> and, and, and sent him flying. But Mozart could get by because by that time, he could give subscription concerts, he could publish his works and, and collect money for it, he could do all sorts of things. And he lived fairly comfortable. You heard these stories that, that Mozart was impoverished. That's not The only reason Mozart was impoverished because he was a big spender. There was no problem with his income. Uh, so that's a fascinating transition, and it's worth asking, what caused that shift? And, and I, I think it's very interesting to look at a change that happened around the year 1770. It's really the birth of what we would call celebrity culture. In fact, the word celebrity changes its meaning around that time. In the early 1700s, the word celebrity existed, but it was an insult. If you said somebody was a celebrity, uh, that was not good. They were standing out for something bad. Uh, they were drawing attention to themselves in a way that was uh, indecorous, that was that was reprehensible. But then around the year 1770, this word starts taking on a positive meaning. And to be a celebrity, wow, every, now that's, to be a celebrity, now that's great. And these musicians were celebrities. And it's fascinating to see the, you can actually trace this, the usage of a word over time, and, and guess when the, the word celebrity was used more often than at any point in history. And this is true in English. It's true in French. Uh, it was the year 1800. The year 1800 was the peak of the word celebrity, and that changed everything. So if you look at Haydn, it's fascinating. You know, he took a job with the Esterhazy family. Uh, this nobility family, Austro-Hungarian, around I think, 1761. And so this was before that period. And, and check it out. We have his contract, so we know what was required. He had to dress like a servant. He had to eat at the servant's table. When a member of the Esterhazy family talked to him, he could respond, but he could not initiate the conversation. Uh, he had to meet with the master every day at noon and be told what music he was going to play or compose. The Esterhazy family controlled the copyrights to anything he composed. It was just ridiculous. Yet this was one of the most desirable music jobs in Europe. Now, here's the fascinating thing. By the time you get uh, 30 years later, Haydn's a celebrity. He can go to London. People treat him like a superstar. And and he can now uh, set his own terms. He still works for the family, but he, I mean, he dictates to them. And you can just, if you read his correspondence or the biography, it's fascinating. And let's hear a little bit of, of Haydn and the music that uh, he was able to make when he was uh, escaped his patrons and, and suddenly became a celebrity in London. This is from Symphony Number no. 104, the London Symphony. 
And that was Josef Haydn's Symphony Number no. 104, the London Symphony, performed by the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. And I, I found it fascinating when you're talking about Haydn and, and the speculation with him and Mozart both as to whether or not groupie culture existed at this point. Well, once again, I could be accused of being gossipy or salacious. Why am I so focused on the musician's sex lives? You know, and, I, and I must admit, I have done a fair amount of research <laughs> into this area. But I think it's important because this is a, this is a useful way of under, us understanding how musicians were perceived in their culture and, and what celebrity status meant back then. And, and what kind of and how did we view the how did the audience view these musicians? And and I would my best sense is that the real notion of a groupie probably emerged around the same time that celebrity culture took off, 1770, 1780, 1790. Now, how do we know this? Well, it's hard to it's hard to gather the evidence. We, well, you know, for example, Haydn's last will and testament. He gives a lot of money to these women he's not related to. Now, you can, you can draw your own conclusions from this, but it's just sort of suspicious that, that Haydn's given, given money to all these women. And then you go into Mozart's letters, and there are these code words he seems to use that seem to represent sexual activities. And even to this day, the Mozart scholars can't agree on what some of these the, these these terms are, and it does not help by the, the the word the French word he uses that means kiss can also be used to mean the word screw. Uh, so I mean, there, there, it's, it's very difficult to put together the story. But we do know that Mozart composed the greatest work of high culture about one night stands and hookups. It's called Don Giovanni, the opera, uh, and and the librettist actually knew Casanova, who's celebrated as as a great lover. I mean, he was fa as famous as as being a seducer. So it, it's clear something is happening in music around this time. And this is setting the stage for our own day when, according to some accounts, you know, Mick Jagger's had more than 5,000 sex partners or Gene Simmons or whatever. We've come to expect that these musicians are, are prolific lovers or seducers or exploiters. Uh, but once again, that seems to date back to this period around 1770, 1780, where for some reason the rules started changing in culture. And I, I had to go back, but I, I, I skipped a thing that I think is really important that you talk about, and this is in your discussion of the Reformation and the various religious wars in Europe, uh, at, you know, the Thirty Years' War and other things that are going on in the 16th century, 17th century. And there's a consistent pattern of ex-musicians or people who'd been musicians becoming the most reactionary and the most concerned with the power of music. You talk about Ulrich Zwingli, who uh, was a Zurich reformer in, in Switzerland, and you know, literally smashing instruments and, and destroying things. But yet this wasn't someone who was tone deaf or hated music. This was a musician. This is a man who was admired for his versatility as, as a performer on multiple different instruments. What do you think it was that it most frequently musicians who are the most worried about music and its influence on society? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating question. And you find this again and again in history. And the, the surprising thing is how little it changes. If you look at the complaints church leaders were making about music in the year 500, they're not much changed by the year 1500 or even in the current day. Uh, and, uh, and there's one medievalist I know that's researched this, and he said, I, I was researching these medieval documents, and it reminded me of my own childhood, of the church my parents took me to. What they're saying about music really hasn't changed. So there's this fear about music. And, and let's be honest, this is a justifiable fear, because music is power. I would be the last to tell parents or ministers or authority figures that music has no power over people's lifestyles. Literally, I just read yesterday that in Egypt they're banning a style of, of street music, this kind of electronic folk music, because the lyrics are getting people too sexually aroused. They had to go in and, and, and forbid this music. And it's easily to, easy to laugh at, but it may very well be true. So there, the music does have power, and authority figures always know this. They know it instinctively that they've got to look out for the music. So when the Reformation came, this was a tremendous revolution in people's lives, and the, and, the, and the Protestant reformers all had to ask themselves, what do we do about this music? 
Martin Luther, we are fortunate that Martin Luther had some love of music. In fact, I think the reason why Germany became the great center of classical music with Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, and all that is because Luther created a culture there that was very tolerant of music. Uh, in England, we were also fortunate. There are people in England who wanted to ban all this music outright. And, uh, but Queen Elizabeth, she liked music. She played the virginal, which, which is sort of this keyboard instrument. She took great pride in her music making, and she restrained those who wanted to impose tremendous censorship. On the other extreme, you have Switzerland, where Zwingli was the reformer, and they just, for a while, they, they completely got rid of music. You would go to churches and people would just sit in silence and, and listen to the recitations from the Bible. They actually went and, and destroyed organs. I mean, they would, they would literally destroy the organ in the church. And as you mentioned, the irony was Zwingli was probably the, one of the, the, the best musical minds of his day. He was a, a talented composer. And, and so the question is, why would this talented composer lead the battle against music, but this is something that's recurred throughout history. We've seen it in the troubadour days when these troubadours would, would embrace religion and denounce their former music. Abelard did this in the medieval times. Even in the 20th century, there are fascinating stories of these blues singers who became ministers. And then later with the blues revival of the 1960s, people would track down these old Mississippi blues singers and say, we'd like you to record some music. We'd like you to record the old blues, and sometimes they were, they were told, no, I won't. I won't record these old blues. They're sinful. And I, I simply chalk this up to the fact that musicians themselves are more aware than anybody of the power of music. And they're not being ridiculous or absurd. They understand full well the power of the music, and then when they change their values, the music has to change for them. And and to segue back to the timeline that we were in before I, I pulled you back, because I wanted to get that point about the musicians fearing and understanding this power of music. There's a transition that happened slightly after Beethoven and, and into the early part of the 19th century. And one of the themes that you talk through in the book is these music has these cycles where it goes through periods where music is more boisterous and more clearly dangerous. And then it'll go into what sort of a lull cycle like we had in American pop in the 50s before rock and roll emerged, where it's banal, pleasant songs like on top of Old Smokey, and how much is that doggy in the window, and things like that. And in the 19th century, you had a period where suddenly this dangerous beast music is allowed into middle-class homes, is welcomed into middle-class homes. The piano becomes this status symbol, and now composers like Chopin and Schubert can make a living writing songs to be performed by teenage girls in their homes. What was the shift there? Well, as you rightly point out, music goes through these cycles. And it's fascinating to see periods in which everything gets gentle and easy and smooth and non-threatening. Uh, you know, once again, I point back, let's, let's, let's give a couple examples. In the early 1970s, we just went to this rock revolution. And then in the early 1970s, you have these singer-songwriters. Carole King, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor. Cat Stevens. I mean, I could take that Cat Stevens album. I could play it for my grandma. And she would say, oh, how nice. And so there, you had this gentle period, but it doesn't last. A few years later, you had punk rock and disco and new wave. And, and, and it's, this is the recurring cycle, is whenever you get into that, that time of, of, of non-threatening, gentle, consensus-building music that crosses generational uh, barriers, uh, the clock is ticking, my friend, because it's not going to last. Because people, this is this is a key part of my book. Is I, I talk about the disruptions in music, but the important point is people want that disruption. People crave that disruption in the music. You know that's why these Egyptian authorities had to go shut down this street music, or Putin is trying to control rap music in Russia, or. Uh, in, in Hong Kong, the protesters are using music. People want that disruptive aspect. And one of the most fascinating time periods is the one you're mentioning. This goes back 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. It looked like music had been tamed. And it's because all of a sudden everybody starts owning musical instruments. Even middle class families can afford pianos. And the reason they buy the piano is fascinating. It's almost always for the children. 
you don't see mom and dad taking the piano lessons. It's always the kids are taking the piano lessons. And in the back of their mind, is this going to help the family advance? It will help my daughter get a good husband. It will help uh, my, my family become more respectable in the community. And so the music is tamed. And, and, you know, I wrote this book on the history of the love song, and it's the most fascinating chapter in the history of the love song. Because the daughter is sitting at the piano singing a song, and, and, and the man who is courting her is sitting there with the parents and listening. And, and I think I, the comment I make is never in history was a love song so less intended to seduce. You know, the, <laughs> the idea is, okay, there's going to be a sexual consummation to this love song, but only after the marriage. So it's, a, it's like this fascinating and if you look at the lyrics of the love songs, they're all very tame. No one ever kisses or even hugs. It's always just, my dear, I feel a deep affection for you, blah, blah, blah. And so this is really, you get to 1830s. This is, music has been domesticated. It's literally domesticated. It's domestic life at home. And once again, it doesn't last. And when it changes, it changes in this ridiculous way with people like Verdi or Wagner who use music as a source of nationalism and upheaval and patriotism and, and even warmongering. I mean, you can like Wagner to the Nazis if you want. You can go down that route. We could talk about that. But it's an amazing thing to look at this, where you, you see these situations where music seems tamed. But it really isn't, because you can, you, can you can never really tame it, and people want the disruption. And let's hear a little bit of this music before we go on to the more stormy, the Storm and Drang of Wagner and others. Let's hear a little bit of Franz Schubert. This is the song Erkulning, uh, sung by Dietrich Fischer Descau, the Schubert. the great Schubert, uh, his song Erkunig, sung by Dietrich fischer Discau. And, and you make a point in this book that's one of my pet peeves, where she, so many times people talk about the greatest songwriters of all time, and they go back maybe, if we're lucky, as far as Gershwin or Irving Berlin. Generally, it stops at, say, maybe Chuck Berry. And yet, Schubert's got this case to clearly be the greatest songwriter of all time, in terms of both quantity and quality of his output. And he's you know, somebody who does symphonies and, and big concert pieces like his predecessors, Beethoven and Mozart, but he also does these intimate songs that for vo voice and piano and, and, and speaking to his time and his period. And before we move to Wagner, I have one theory that you didn't bring up in the book, but I've been curious about. And I've noticed that these periods of lulls in music frequently come in the aftermath of major wars, the period we've been talking about, the 1820s, 1830s. You know, this, the survivors of this time, these are the survivors of the Napoleonic Wars or the people coming home from World War II. They were the ones that wanted to hear how much is that dog in the window. And you could make the argument with the singer-songwriters. It's the, the post or the ending of the Vietnam War. Do you think there's a correlation there in terms of people having experienced so much violence and storm and drong and they just want something soothing? I think that's a great point. You know, I wrote a book 10, 15 years ago called The Birth and Death of the Cool. And the starting point of that book was just to explore what does it mean to be cool? And we couldn't have a, a, a simple concept of the book. But as I began doing the research, I learned something that surprised me. I learned that sometimes being cool was uncool. And that, in fact, cool was not a timeless concept. But it went into fashion at a certain point and went out of fashion at another point in time. And... I looked at this great revolution that I date back to the Miles Davis albums, The Birth of the Cool, which were made around 1949. And it seemed like for the next 40, 50 years, cool was an ideal. You wanted to be cool. People wanted to be cool. They listened to musicians who were cool. And what I, I began to see is around the year 2000, things started shifting. And I hypothesize, now check this out, I, I, this is something I wrote 10, 15 years ago. I said, we're now entering 
an age, instead of being cool and laid back and relaxed, is the idea. We're entering an age of confrontation and anger. <laughs> I wrote that, I think, in 2005. Clearly nothing in the next 15 years has forced me to change that view. <laughs> uh, I, th I think it's safe to say we are living in a, a time of anger and confrontation. And, I, and this is something I've never written, but the evidence is there of a larger sense of 50-year cycles. And if you go and apply this, it, it works. It works in a strange way. If, let's assume that uh, the Civil War was a hot cycle. I think people were confrontational back then, too. I vaguely recall that during the Civil War, uh, people in the U.S. were angry at each other. Yes. Uh, and a very hot culture. And then afterwards, you had the Reconstruction, and then you had this amazing period of prosperity. And check this out. 1890s, 1900s, immigrants were welcome in the United States. People seemed to – the United States avoided major wars uh, for the next 50 years. It went to World War I, which coincidentally is 50 years after the Civil War ended. All of a sudden, these, these great global confrontations heat up again. And I think people, once again, after World War II, people were exhausted because they'd gone through two world upheavals. Shouldn't be surprising that cruelness, restraint, laid-back attitudes might be popular after you went through these two world wars. But I'm, I'm now convinced, although, like I say, this would require more research and clarification, I am now convinced there are larger cycles in culture between hot and cool, and they impact the music. They impact the music. So... Um, Right now, I, I think we're in the, we are st st still in the early stages of. If I'm correct, and I hope I'm wrong on this, we're still in a in in. We have another 20 years to go of this hot stage where people scream at each other and whatever. But that's the world we live in. And and to take it back a little, Wagner and Verdi emerge as these voices of national nationalism in music, which was not something that anybody saw coming, and it had this enormous impacts. Both you know, Verdi becomes the songwriter of, of Italy becoming a country, the unification of Italy and the various revolutions that took that. And Wagner takes on this much more ominous tone. I mean, he's explicitly anti-Semitic and writes this series of operas that are rousing and militant and violent and adored by Hitler and, and definitely, you know, this immense negative influence on in the world. And yet it's some of the most beautiful and popular music in Western culture. And you, you have this thing where you pinpoint what you think one of the shifts was that that artists in say box era when they were servants of the church or of cities they felt themselves they they saw themselves as serving the nation but once wagner comes along they see they represented the nation talk about that distinction and why you think it was so dangerous once again i if you go back to these idea cycles i think this, this starts around 1849 you have sort of this new revolutionary period in Europe, people had forgotten all the Napoleonic violence, and they were ready they were ready for a new round of violence. But all of a sudden, you have these nationalism movements throughout Europe, and every one of them has its own composer. And so Verdi is the spokesperson of the people that want to unify Italy. And if you're proud of being a German, you listen to Wagner, and all of a sudden... Uh, Composers believe they are emblematic of their nation. And I think this idea persisted for a long time. I mean, even into the 20th century, I'm sure Aaron Copeland was very self-consciously an American composer, wanted to sound American, Gershwin. And in fact, if you look at composers everywhere, you go to, to uh, Sibelius, you know, write a song called Finlandia or whatever. I mean, everybody was... Uh, you know, Bartok was very conscious of his Hungarian roots. The, every, to be a great composer uh, in the hundred years following Wagner is to align yourself with the nation where you are the spokesperson for the country. And, and it, I don't think we even now realize how strange this notion is. I and mean, we take this for granted. We, we, align people, we align composers with the first thing when people talk about a classical composer is what country they're from. That's the first thing, even before you talk about what style of music they, they composed in. And we come to take it for granted, but it's a dangerous game to play. 
And I'll just point out a couple things. Uh, if you go before Wagner, things were a lot more open and easy, and these borders weren't quite so powerful. So someone like Handel could come to England and be considered an English composer, even though technically he's what we would call German. Uh, or you have a situation, I mean, take this, I mean, this is amazing to consider. Before Wagner, the greatest German composer of the preceding generation was probably Felix Mendelssohn, who was Jewish. We'd, after Wagner, that wouldn't be allowed. I mean, the idea that a Jewish composer could be the great German composer, that would, that would have, the Germans would have shaked in their boots at the notion. But even look at what Mendelssohn composed. You know, his most famous symphonies are the Italian symphony and his Scottish symphony. Uh, and he did this music to Midsummer's Night Dream, which is a Shakespeare play, uh, I think set in Greece. So, I mean, it's very cosmopolitan and international. And musicians are moving around. Haydn comes to England and is celebrated as a great composer there. And then you fast forward. Everybody is identified with my country and patriotism and my country will beat up your country. Uh, and it's a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy situation. But once again, as you know from reading my book, one of the recurring themes is music has always been tribal. It's always been anthems about group bonding. And so even the, the, the earliest hunters went on their hunting expedition singing songs as they killed animals. And then soldiers would sing songs as they would kill other soldiers. And so it's strange, but it's not surprising that music would have this bizarre history in which it gets wrapped up into national politics. That's, that's part of the DNA of music to have that potential. And let's hear a little bit of Wagner. This is the most banal and obvious choice, but I just couldn't resist. It's a, it's a hit movie from Apocalypse Now and, and so on. This is Richard Wagner's Ride of the Valkyrie. Ride to the Valkyrie by Richard Wagner. And you, you talk about this, you have a, a great quote, a, a great snippet I wanted to quote here, where you talk about the debate over Wagner's complicity in the bloody and genocidal results of this overweening sense of national identity, national destiny will probably never end. There is no formula for balancing the value of an artistic work against human suffering. That equation simply doesn't exist and never will. Talk about that a little bit and, and, and how we balance that and how come we never really can come to a satisfactory answer on this. Well, we deal with that even now. In fact, we deal with it nowadays more than we have uh, in recent memory. We face this situation where there are artists who are successful at what they do. In fact, they're superstars, but their private life seems wrong-headed, reprehensible, or even the criminal at some points. Some classic example is Michael Jackson. And the question is, how do you balance out the quality of the artistic product from the private behavior of the artist? So, I mean, this is the Michael Jackson issue. It's the Woody Allen issue. It's the Roman Polanski issue. Uh, I could give 20 more examples. There'll probably be another one in the news tomorrow. Some do artist who we found has done something that is just plain wrong. And then the question is, how does this affect the music? Is the music wrong now? Is this Michael J is, is Thriller no longer a good song? Is uh, Woody Allen no longer uh, a, a good filmmaker? Uh, and Wagner is the person who really raised this issue most prominently in the music world because there seems to be a very strong connection with Wagner and, and, and the later Nazi regime. And that's, that's a complicated issue, and I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of it. But the, the obvious question is, should we still listen to Wagner? I mean, the whole issue for, for decades, you know, you, you would never hear Wagner played in Israel. And then I think finally that changed a few years back. Is that right? Is that wrong? And I, 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 I hate to to uh, avoid an answer, but my answer is there is no answer here. That you cannot 
These are two different spheres. You cannot translate uh, aesthetic judgment into moral judgment. And I've been studying Immanuel Kant lately, and, and, and I could get very philosophical on this. There's no formula here. We all have to make up our minds on this. This is where I come down. This is where I come. My view is that in most instances, we should view the art on artistic standards and the person on moral standards. The other thing I believe is no matter how great an artist you are, that does not give you license to act reprehensibly in your private life. I do not give a free pass to artists. On the other hand, I don't jump to the conclusion that uh, because this artist is, and we've all done this, I'm, I'm sure you've done it. I've interviewed musicians I admire, and, and you meet them in the interview, and it's, you're disappointed. <laughs> you're disappointed <laughs> yes. to say the least. But that doesn't mean they're not a great artist. Probably the best way of describing this, someone said this to me once, I thought this was really funny. We're talking about some of these very difficult jazz musicians like Miles Davis. Um, and someone said, well, Ted, they put all their sweetness into the music. There was none left for their day-to-day -day life. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe it's as simple as that. I don't know. But the, my view is that we should walk on these subjects cautiously. I fear we may be entering an age of widespread censorship. I don't think that's an illegitimate fear seeing what's going on. And I, uh, my view is that I think we should leave it up to individuals to decide. I, I don't want Spotify telling me what musicians I can listen to. Thank you very much. On the other hand, if someone tells me they don't want to listen to Michael Jackson anymore, I respect that. But I respect it as an individual decision, not as an institutional mandate. So I guess that's where I come down. And, uh, and that's a, a heavy note to end on. And I agree with you uh, about um, – I share your concerns that we're – the potential to enter an era of serious musical censorship is is right upon us. And we've already seen a few relatively minor artists have their work erased from Spotify, and I fear we'll see more of it. But I wanted to wrap up with one last uh, quote. Uh, you say, when I tell people that music is closely connected to violence, um, they often reject the notion out of hand. Perhaps because they sense their own vulnerability, the persuasion of the melodies. And, and you you have this comeback to Harvard philosopher Steven Pinker, who uh, views music as a sort of brain stimulation, what he calls an auditory cheesecake. And you say, that is some deadly cheesecake, Professor Pinker. <laughs> I know this, like, like I said, I just read yesterday the Egyptian authorities are shutting down this music. Uh, a week does not go by in which I don't read about some government somewhere being afraid of music. And that tells us that music is more than idle entertainment. It's more than the auditory cheesecake, which Stephen Pinker tells us exists solely for brain stimulation. It's powerful, and it's incumbent upon us to recognize it. That's the only way we can know how to use its power for, for productive things, because for every time music is used as a source of violence and war, it's also used, used as a source of love and, and, and group bonding in positive ways. And so knowledge is power there, and as we know the power of music, that's what gives us the ability to act responsibility, uh, uh, the ability and responsibility to use it in uh, constructive ways. And, and that's what part of my life's mission is all about. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is Ted Joya, the author of Music, A Subversive History, and uh, delightful to discuss the book again and hope to have you back again soon. Thank you very much, Nate. It's been great. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Mark Lewison to talk about his definitive history of the Beatles, The Beatles, All These Years, Volume 1. Tune in. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Music, A Subversive History, is published by Basic Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letterrollpodcast.com.